Well, Pastor Bill asked me to fill in for him while he's off on vacation, and I'm privileged and proud to do that. This is not my normal won't, and so I took an extra bit of practice and an extra bit of care to come up with something. What I settled on was Psalm 101, and many of you right now may be scratching your heads because no one ever heard of Psalm 101 before. However, it uh, has great personal meaning for me. Back in the early 2000s, uh, we had a member of our church who uh, had difficulties with drugs, and ultimately he ended up going to jail. And he was there for three years, and during those three years, I wrote to him. I started out writing to just him, and over time, it turned into 30 other people. Uh, so I was regularly corresponding with 30 different guys uh, in the same prison he was in. That was actually quite, quite not, not a burden at all, like it might sound. It was, a, it was really quite a joy. So anyway, I, I got to know some of these guys really, really well. We would literally write every week. So as the three years was about to expire, uh, several of the men, including our friend, were up for release. And so I thought long and hard about what, what could I say to them in a letter that would encourage them, help them to, get to establish themselves on the outside. And after wandering around through the scriptures a bit, I stumbled on Psalm 101. I stumbled on 101 because, as I said earlier in this uh, service today, I, too, am a son of Adam. I, too, am a, a slave to the covenant of works. So my first reaction, my first thought to them was, well, what you need to do when you go back to the free world is follow God, follow his commandments, obey. That is, of course, a correct answer. Just way out of tune, way incomplete. There is a real temptation for me and for all of us to fall into this law-keeping idea. Jesus himself says to us, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So it's not like this is a bad idea. And in fact, it isn't, and I don't want to discourage you from obeying God's law. But as I said before, that is an, an incomplete answer. Oh, by the way, one of our great heroes of the Presbyterian faith, John Calvin, uh, proposed this idea about what is the purpose? What are the uses of law for us, for us as Christians? Well, there are general uses for the law. He, he came up with three particular uses. The, general, the first two are general. That is, number one use of the law is to restrain evil. That is, it's to tell the world, including us, what God thinks is good and bad, what's right and wrong. And in some sense, actually for centuries, in many senses, that really worked well. It, its effect seems to be waning these days, but that's another topic for another day. The second use of the law was, given that you know what you're doing wrong, it should drive you back to Christ. Two great ideas. And both of those are really general. They're for the whole wide world. The third use of the law really is more specifically for Christians, and that is to say, once you have a right relationship with God, what do you have to do to please him? What does God expect from you to please him? And Calvin came up with this idea, which is really straightforward. That is that God's law tells us what it is that's pleasing to God, how it is that we can please him. And so we should follow it just for that, if no other reason. Again, the problem with keeping law, and again, you should, the problem with it is, as Pastor Bill often says, it's like hanging ornaments on a Christmas tree. It's, it's an accoutrement. It's an after-the-fact thought. The problem that we have is that how we act, what we do, flows naturally and directly 
from who we are. If we don't have a right relationship with God, if we don't have faith in Christ, then all the, the bubble hanging on the tree is no more than uh, sin that's sending us to hell. He, the author of Hebrews tells us, without faith, you cannot please God. So the first step, the, the first thing that we have to do or have is this relationship with God. And anything else is just self-righteousness working itself out through supposed acts of good. As I mentioned earlier in this service, um, from my perspective, and I don't think I'm alone in this, Christianity, the Christian life, is all about relationships. These are fundamental. Relationships are fundamental to who we are as Christians. I don't know if you noticed this or not, but in Matthew 22, uh, Jesus is asked, what's the great commandment? And his answer is what? Go out and do good to neighbors? No. It's love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. That is, have a good, right relationship with God. A vertical relationship. And the second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That is, have a horizontal relationship with those here on the ground. Hopefully, we saw those two ideas perfectly illustrated in Paul's letter. We, we read the exhortation. Uh, in the beginning of chapter 3, Paul talks about you're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Therefore, act like it. But what does act like it look like? Well, the whole end of the chapter is about wives, you do this. Husbands, you do this. Relate. Wives relate to your husbands. Husbands relate to your wives. Parents relate to your children. Children relate to your parents. People relate to your bosses. It's all about relationship. So while obedience, law keeping, is right, it's incomplete. You really need to have both. That is, the law keeping, which is, as I mentioned earlier, the imperatives of Christianity, flow directly from the indicatives, who you are in Christ. You have to have the relationship, and out of that relationship will naturally flow obedience to God's laws. Aside from uh, Jesus and Paul, maybe a, the greatest argument of all for the relationships of Christianity is the Trinity itself. Within Trinity, we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three separate persons. But they have lived forever in perfect harmony, in perfect relationship with one another. Father to Son, Father to Spirit, Son to Father, Son to Spirit, Spirit to Father, Spirit to Son. No division, no separation, no difference in mind, in purpose. Perfect relationships. Now, we're not going to be perfect. We're fallen creatures. But that does not mean that we can't aim for, struggle for, strive for that kind of perfect harmony with those that uh, we're in communion with. Given the way things are today with our politics, with social media, the idea of working out relationships is probably a really good idea, something we really need to work on. And with all that in mind, I offer to you Psalm 101. Psalm 101, the translators have given us a nice, broad 
outline for what my sermon will be today. And I'm just going to run through these. We'll come back to them a little bit later. Uh, in, in verse 1, he gives us a relationship with, uh, with, the, with God. In verse 2 and 3, yes, in, in verse 2 and in 3, he talks about our relationship, our, our, our personal behavior, our personal attitudes. In verse 4 and 5, he talks about our relationship uh, to our neighbors, to those who are closest around us. And then in 6 through 8, he talks about our relationship to the broader community. Now, that's not a perfect uh, description of those, those verses. We're going to come back to them. But that's roughly the idea. That is, Psalm 101 presents to us four, four different relationships. There's a relationship be, um, of justification, that is, right standing with God. We see that in verse 1. And in verses 2 and 3, uh, we see a relationship with those around us. Or, excuse me. It is still a relationship with God. It is how we relate to him and how we respond to him. The third is with our neighborly relationships, and the fourth is with community relationships. Those four relationships are divided up in a couple different ways. The first two, as I stumbled to say a moment ago, are our relationship to God. And you can think about them also in terms of justification and sanctification. That is, the first part of our relationship with God is being justified. Justification is the one-time, once-forever, free act of God's grace by which he declares us righteous on the basis of faith in Christ. That's the, the essential preamble to everything else that's going to happen to us. The second of those relationships is sanctification. Sanctification also has to do with how, our, how we relate to God. That is, what is our attitude toward in our behaviors? But it's also how we relate to the broader community, how we relate outside on the horizontal level. I think that the readings that we had today, in many ways, distill for us, or are distilled for us, in Psalm 101. That is, Matthew 22 talks about the two relationships, the vertical relationship and the horizontal relationship. And that's the first uh, two sections of Psalm 101. And then the remainder of Psalm 101 works out the horizontal relationships. Our, uh, again, our relationship to our closest friends or our neighbors, and then our relationship to the broader community. So that's the way we want to approach the text. The second thing I want to point out is that, as the text says, this is a psalm of David. Generally, we would skip over that, but I think it has, it's an important idea that we need to keep in mind and is going to come out as we look at the, some of the, the language in the psalm. Okay, so let's go back and look at verse 1. I will sing of mercy and justice. To you, O Lord, I will sing praises. Okay. This first verse is the, the Im implicit acknowledgement of the relationship of justification with God. That is, it's David who's written this psalm. And I don't think anybody in here wants to argue that David was not in a right relationship with God. He is, after all, called in Scripture a man after God's own heart. So... We see it illustrated in this first verse, David's uh, commitment to the Lord. But even if you didn't want to accept that, think about the words that are here in this verse. Sing, mercy, justice, praise. Now, I confess freely 
that all those words are common and used in secular uh, situations, but you will never in a secular situation find all four of those words used in the same sentence. That is, this psalmist, David, wants to sing of mercy and justice. Who does that in secular society? But especially if singing of those is meant to praise God. So I'm fairly confident that you'll agree with me that this first verse gives us a hint, gives us a representation of that um, relationship of justification. The second is in verses 2 through 4. I will behave wisely in a perfect way. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will not know wickedness. There are four things I want us us to see here. In verse 2a, I will behave wisely in a perfect way. The psalmist, David, is again now talking about his, his personal relationship with God, how it is he's going to behave and what his attitudes are going to be. The key among those is he's going to behave wisely, and he's going to put, behave in a perfect way. Now, does perfect mean that he will behave in a sinless way? No. He can't and we can't. But it does mean that he's going to strive with all of his efforts, all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, as much as that's possible in a fallen person, to have this right relationship to God and to maintain it through a proper behavior and attitude. We see that uh, same idea replicated in uh, 2C. I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. Again, he's not saying he's going to be sinless, but it is his desire, as much as it is possible, that he would be sinless, that he would walk in a perfect way, that his heart would be perfect, perfectly attuned to God and to his laws, and that he would his mind would be attuned to God and his laws, to A and to C. Wisdom and uh, walking, and that is living out your life. Then in 3A, he says, I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I know that it's probably not appropriate to, to uh, <laughs> reference this movie in church, but... Um, have you ever seen Silence of the Lambs? At the, at the high point, or, or one of the early high points of the movie, someone who had a relationship with the ultimate bad guy says, we covet what we see. We covet what we see. I remember the first time I saw that in the movie, it, it sort of struck me odd. I had never considered before even what covetousness means. But it's hard to covet something that you don't see. It's hard to covet something that you don't know about. So seeing is the first step towards that coveting. And David acknowledges and promises that he's not going to set anything before his eyes that would allow him to take that first step toward covetousness. And then in 4B, in 4B he says, I will not know wickedness. What does that word know mean? we think back in the Old Testament, uh, knowing was uh, an intimate word. A word for intimacy is a word for uh, uh, bearing children, uh, sexual relations. Somebody knew somebody and they begot somebody else. That's all the begetting 
was coming from the knowing. Knowing is a very intimate word. It's, it's a personal word. It's, David is promising here not to take into himself, not to cling to, not to hold on to things which are wicked. I will not know wickedness. It will not be part of David's life. So then he lifts his eyes from this uh, relationship of sanctification. We had justification in the first verse, sanctification now for the remainder of the psalm, but the personal part of sanctification in verses 2 through 4. He now lifts his eyes to uh, those associates, his neighbors, those people in his closest circle. So we'll see in uh, 3b, I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will not know wickedness. But it moves on to verse 5. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. The one who has a haughty look and a proud heart, him I will not endure. But also, verse 6c, he who walks in a perfect way, he shall serve me. And he who works deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who tells lies shall not continue in my presence. So, David now names the qualities or the attributes of people who are going to be, that he's going to allow into his close circles. It's not enough just for him to be holy in his own mind, in his own heart. That holiness needs to extend to the people that he invites into his life to participate in his life. Whoever slanders, well, first off, so let, let's think about all the, all the things that he says here. In verse 3a, he says, I will not set uh, anything away. I hate the work of those who fall away. Who are those who fall away? People who are not of faith? People who claim to be of faith but fall away? What is that called? Apostate? Unbelievers? Apostates? David will not allow himself to associate with people who are apostate from the faith. I want to be careful here because I, I'm, I don't want to suggest that you can't have anything to do with unbelievers. Paul, in fact, himself in 2 Corinthians says, if you separated yourself from all unbelievers, you'd have to leave the world. So that's a foolish idea. That's not the idea. But it is that you don't allow those folks to be your intimate circle among your closest friends. A perverse heart shall, shall depart from me. I will not know wickedness. A perverse heart. What's a perverse heart? A heart that's corrupt, that's evil, that studies on evil, that has, part, has made evil part of their common existence, part of their walk, if you will. David will not allow those in his inner circle. Whoever slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. This is verse 5a. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. Slander, what is slander? False witness, talking against, talking against someone. Uh, we already know there's a commandment about that, the ninth commandment, right? It's interesting that he says, whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, he will destroy. Now, that's sort of a scary word, right? Uh, do you think he's telling us that we should go destroy go destroy people who uh, who fall away or have a perverse heart no no he's not um, I actually looked up this word in Hebrew there are two different words here in this psalm that are used for destroy and both of them could be interpreted to, literally to destroy but they could also be cut off as in the sense of Abraham 15 uh, excuse me Genesis 15 where Abraham make, has this covenant 
cutting of a covenant where God visits him in a dream and Abraham divides birds and sheep and whatever and he walks down the middle with a flaming pot. Do you remember that story? My point is this. Remember that David is the guy who's writing this psalm and he is king. So David as king would not only have the the ability but also the, sort of the responsibility to remove evil from his kingdom. So if it literally means to destroy as in kill, I don't think we should shirk back from that, at least with respect to David, not with respect to us. But it is just as likely that this word cut off does just mean that, cut off from the land, that is to banish, to, to send away as, as a covenant responsibility, as in Genesis 15. So that's an entirely uh, separate possibility and one that I would prefer. The one who has a haughty look and a proud heart, him I will not endure. So David's also not going to invite into his circle those people who have a haughty look. What is a haughty look? It's arrogance, pride and arrogance, haughty look and proud. But, but in either case, David wants not, nothing to do with these folks as part of his inner circle. On the other hand, in verse 6b, we see uh, David's eyes are on the faithful of the land that they may dwell with him. He who walks in a perfect way, he shall serve me. So just as he promised to, have, to walk in a perfect way, so he it wants and invites other folks who also want to work in a perfect way to be part of his circle. And in 7, he points out two more things. Those who work deceit shall not dwell within my house, and he who tells lies shall not continue my presence. So he's got, also going to cut off deceivers and liars it's hard to argue with that list of uh, don'ts right? I mean, these are all good things that, that we too can practice in our lives so finally then he lifts his eyes to the broader community that is just beyond him personally and those people around him what about his relationship to um, to, to the, the city, the town he lives in the, the place he lives in here we see in uh, uh, in 6a again my eyes shall be on the faithful land that they may dwell with me what he's saying is that he wants to uh to imitate those people who do right this is not a far-fetched idea uh paul uh says something along the same lines uh but also in first Corinthians 15 paul says bad company corrupts good habits so it's it's good and right to look for people who also want to live rightly before God and to, to the extent possible to imitate them and to invite them into, into um, your circle and also to support them as they work their, their right and good within the community. And then in 8, I, early I will destroy all the wicked of the land that I may cut off all the evil, evil doers from the city of the Lord. So one more time, we're back to this destroying part. He want, he's going to cut off the wicked and the evildoers. And again, as a king, that was not only his, his ability, it was also his responsibility. But we too need to banish, separate those people who are wicked and evil from our lives. And if possible, and if possible, from the community. So, we see there are four uh, basic relationships. The re relationship of justification with God, the relationship of personal holiness with God, and then how that stuff works itself out um, with those in our closest circles, 
and with those in the broader community. The one thing I wanted to notice, early on I said that the, the, the translators gave us a basic structure for what I was going to talk about. Well, I think you should notice that interspersed with those ideas about personal holiness are ideas about his inner circle. As we see it in uh, 3B, remember 3A was that David was himself not going to look at anything evil. And it's bracketed in 4B by I, 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 David will not know anything of wickedness. But stuffed in between there is that he's going to hate the work of those who fall away, of apostates. He's going to uh, not allow a perverse heart to cling to him. That is, he's intermingling his personal qualities, his personal traits, with those that extend to his inner circle. But that's not the only one. In 6... He's now talking again about his relationship to the broader community. Six and eight talk about the broader community. But stuffed in the middle is verse seven, where he talks about his relationships with those who are near, near to him, in his inner circle. Right? Seven uh, was that he wasn't going to let anybody in his inner circle who practiced deceit. And 7b was he wasn't going to let anyone in his circle who told lies. So intermingled with his own personal behavior is the behavior toward his inner circle and also towards the broader community. I don't think that's, a, that's an accident. I don't think it's a mistake. Um, the fact of the matter is our personal beliefs, attitudes, behaviors have a direct effect on those we have around us, on those who we invite into our inner circle, who are our acquaintances, our co-workers and such. And just as much, although perhaps not quite as much. They also have an, an effect on our relationship with the broader community. That is, our, our attitude toward God, our behavior, our ideas are important for relating to our inner circle and they're important for relating to uh, the broader community. And if we don't do that, then we're fa falling down on our responsibilities. David clearly had a much bigger responsibility because he was king. But each of us are king in our own castle. Each of us are, uh, have a, a role not only within our home, but also within our neighborhoods, also within our businesses, and also within the broader community, if it's possible, to, uh, to share the, the goodness, the grace, the holiness of God. So, I have one final point I want to make. Several times now we've talked about this psalm being written by David and how it colors things. So I'd just like to, you to think about and ask yourself this question. How did David do in this little test of uh, his relationships with God and with the community? And the answer is, he didn't do really well, right? Uh, personally, he was uh, basically a murderer, a liar, an adulterer. He didn't do well. His relationship with uh, his inner circle was not a whole lot better. Uh, his son Absalom overthrew the kingdom. He, he had uh, his, his good friend Joab. I don't know if you remember Joab from the Old Testament, but Joab was a pretty wild guy. He was really good at killing people. Uh, 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 he was not, not very trustworthy, not a very good man, but he was David's very close friend. And with respect to the broader community, the, the sins that David committed uh, forever changed Israel, forever hurt Israel. So David didn't really do well. 
And I think if we're honest about that, we would see that we also don't do real well with those personal with those relationships, whether it be personal or neighborly or within the community. The really good news is that we have one that was given to us by God who passed every one of those tests. The one about whom really this psalm is written, the Lord Jesus Christ. And because Jesus passed every test, we have a right relationship with God by faith in him, by faith in Jesus. And because he fulfilled that covenant of works, the thing that we so basically want to work at ourselves, we are justified by faith, we're sanctified by his spirit, and by that spirit we are empowered so that we can live lives of personal holiness, so that we can have holy relationships with those in our inner circles, and so that we can have an effect on the broader community for the glory of God and for the good of the kingdom. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace of justification secured for us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we bless you for the ongoing work of your spirit as he sanctifies us in and through our relationships with you, with our neighbors, and with the broader community. And, and we pray, Lord, your word and spirit will conform all our relationships to the perfections of your Trinitarian model. And that your resulting gifts of unity, purity, and peace will please and honor you through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory now and forever. Amen.